thank you so much, Tim, for joining me today. And Richard Lorenzen, CEO of Fifth Avenue Brands, is making this broadcast possible. Has worked with Wave Capital and you know represents our company for uh, our firm's media appearances. And you know this broadcast will be uploaded to YouTube. So for all our ESPN. Uh, colleagues and friends, or I should say my former ESPN colleagues and friends, and you're a former colleague of mine. And I want to just thank you so much again for, for joining me today. And I hope all is well with you and your family. Well, thanks, Garrett. Everything is fine. Happy to be here. Let's go. All right. Sounds great. Tim, when you think of uh, team building, you know, what is a definition in your mind for team building? You've covered Major League Baseball for so many years and been around so many different teams, whether on the field, in a family of your own, at ESPN, you know, speaking events I'm sure you've done with other organizations. How would you define team building? Well, I love being on a team, Garrett. It's the most important thing that we do back to my high school days as a baseball basketball player, but way more important after that, working at newspapers on a team, working at Sports Illustrated on a team, and now more important than any, working at ESPN on a team. Because when you're on television, the chemistry that you have with the people you work with is absolutely critical. They have to trust you that you know what you're doing and you have to trust them. And that's how it works now for me. And it has for a long time. When I look at Carl Ravitch, I know I'm in good hands doing baseball tonight or a game when he's the play-by-play -play guy. When I'm sitting next to the other analyst, Eduardo Perez, my partner, I know he's got my back no matter what. And he knows that if he doesn't have something which is highly unusual, I will be there to fill in. That's what team building is to me. It's about trusting everyone around you. And that's not just in on the set of baseball tonight. This is how big league teams win. This is how businesses operate. You have to know that everyone with you is trying as hard as you are. And once you establish that, everything usually goes as well as possible. Well, it's a great answer, Tim. And I know, you know, your strong relationships with Carl Ravage and Eduardo Perez. And when you you know, are on ESPN baseball tonight in studio or when you're covering major league baseball games, you're so, you're so knowledgeable and, you know, the synergies, you, you can feel it even when you're watching at home, you, you know, you know, your stuff, you know, the history, you know, the facts of each major league baseball team, you know, the camaraderie that you have with Carl and Eduardo, it definitely, it definitely shows. And, you know, you helped answer my second question, but I want to specifically talk about a major league baseball team. What is required? What are the leadership attributes? Uh, what are the, what are the qualifications? What are the specific qualities, if you will, that really makes a great major league baseball team in the run up to, let's say a world series contender type of team. Well, to me, it obviously has to start with the manager. He has to set the guidelines and the rules. And all the managers I've covered, and I've covered hundreds of them over the last 42 years. Earl Weaver did things with the Orioles in the 80s and 70s and 60s right. a little differently than everybody else. Everyone was afraid of Earl on the Orioles, but they all respected him and they all listened to every word that he said. Other managers are different. Terry Francona, 
He will get angry at you, believe me, but he's got a different way to do things. He'll pat you on the back. He'll pat you on the butt. He knows every button to push, when to push, and, and everyone has a different button. That's been Tony LaRusso's greatest strength over the years. He's a master tactician, but more important, he's the master psychologist. He knows to get the best out of this guy Here's what I have to do. And that's where the manager begins. But it's also about the players, too. And the great leadership players that I've met over the years, they know when it's their turn to step forward and help the manager. For instance, Don Mattingly of the Yankees is one of the great leaders that I've ever covered in my career. And, of course, now he's the manager of the Marlins. Buck Walter told me once that, Mattingly, uh, they had just acquired Ruben Sierra to be on the Yankees. And he hit a home run, and he took his sweet time running around the bases. And Buck Showalter, the manager, was not happy about that. And Mattingly looked at his own manager and said, I'll take care of this. And he took Ruben Sierra up the runway at Yankee Stadium and very politely and very privately told him, look, we're the Yankees. We don't do that here. And Ruben Sierra got the message immediately. And this is what the leader also has to do, Garrett. Mattingly went to Buck Walter in the 95 season and said, you got to take me out of the number four spot. I'm not good enough to hit fourth on this team anymore. Mattingly had a bad back. Everybody knew it. But instead of Buck having to do that himself, Mattingly did it for him. And towards the end of that year, he told Buck, next year you got to get a new first baseman because I'm not good enough to play first base for the Yankees anymore. And the next year they got Tino Martinez and won the World Series. So there is leadership capabilities everywhere. It has to start with the manager. But when you can find a player or two who are willing to step up and be the leaders within the team, then you know you got it made. And, you know, it's wonderful that, you know, you really, you know, take a deep dive in, you know, certain managers, you know, personalities and the conversations that you've had with them and how, you know, managers can give other managers advice. And it really sets the tone for their careers because they always draw back, to you know, previous conversations that they had with either former players or managers, or just coming up through the big leagues, because it really does shape them. Are they going to be a player that plays for a little bit and then goes into a managerial capacity, or are they going to be around for a very long time and be known as the face of that franchise, like a Derek Jeter, you know, for the Yankees, or even going back even you know a longer period than that, you know, when you think about other organizations like a Cal Ripken Jr. for the Orioles, or when you think about a Ken Griffey Jr. for the Seattle Mariners, there are players who play for a long time and go into the Hall of Fame. And there are some players like a Joe Torrey that, you know, they made it. They, they, they did such great things as a player and then they win four World Series titles. Uh, so it's one of those things where you, you don't know how you're going to see, you know, and these, you know, see where these players, you know, go through their, to their, you know, through their careers. Uh, when you think about, um, you know, if you can think of like a CEO of a company of an organization or a business, who would be a great manager 
that would be a great CEO of, let's say, an organization that's not sports related in your mind? Well, you mentioned him. Joe Torre is a perfect example. Joe Torre was a great player. Joe Torre was a Hall of Fame manager, and Joe Torre has been a great executive, and he could go into any line of work and be wildly successful because Joe Torre has a great feel for people. And, and this is one example. Tino Martinez told me once that he was struggling so badly that Joe called him in his office. Now, when the manager calls you in his office, right. generally that's not a good thing. So Tino walks in there thinking, Joe is either going to bench me or do something worse. Instead, Joe says, he gives him a piece of paper and he says, I want you to go to this restaurant tonight. It's the best Italian place in New York. And he said, and I want you to order this wine. This is the best wine they have there. And he said, whatever, the manicotti is tremendous. And Tino looked at him like, that's it. So Joe <laughs> said, that's it. And he went out, went out to dinner, had a bottle of wine, came back, started hitting the next day. Now, is that a coincidence or did the manager show him that I believe in you, even though you haven't had a hit in 10 days? This is what great managers do. And I find that the great managers would be great in any other line of work, because the most important thing about being a manager is dealing with the personalities on your team especially when you have 25 of them. And in today's day and age, we have 50 guys that play per team per year. You have to deal with 50 guys, sometimes way more than that. That is the challenge. It's not when do I bunt, when do I bring in a new pitcher? It's how do I get the best out of this many different personalities? That's what Joe Torrey did just about as well as anyone I met. And when you think about, you mentioned Joe Torrey as a CEO of a company and that in any, you know, walk of life, let's say if it wasn't Major League Baseball, he would be successful in other capacities. What about a former player or a current player? Who do you think would make a great CEO of a company? Somebody can help develop or bring a lot of opportunities to expand the growth capability or potential of an organization who's a, who's a good player in your mind well cal ripkin's the perfect example of that cal ripkin was obviously a hall of fame player who broke the all-time consecutive games played so it shows what commitment and loyalty and discipline's all about but he's also the most observant and the most curious player that i know i've ever met all sorts of things really interest him. For instance, <laughs> this is a strange example, but this speaks to exactly who he is. He used to get his, his uh, ankles taped every day by the trainer, Richie Bansells. And Ripken would ask him, like, why are you taping my ankles that way? Why do you start at the heel and then go up? Why, why don't you start up top and then go down to the heel? And Richie, who was dear friends with Rip Jr., finally looked at him and said, look, I don't know why I do it this way. This is how they taught me to do this to become a major league trainer. But Ripken ended up learning how to tape his own ankles as well as somebody else could tape them 
which is almost impossible to do. But this is what Cal Ripken is able to do is have that curious nature. He's asked me all about, you know, what it's like to be a writer. And, you know, why did you do that with your story? And when I've been on TV and he's asked me, you know, why did you do that? And I even played basketball with him a bunch of times. And he even asked me a couple basketball questions. We're two completely different players. He's a foot taller than me, weighs a hundred pounds more than me. But that's the point. To be really good as a writer like myself, you have to be observant and you have to be curious. Cal Ripken was always, always searching for something to learn on a daily basis. His mother once told me, my son never went to college, but I promise you, he's the smartest person I've ever met. And maybe it's she's just biased because that's her son. But you can learn an awful lot by just keeping your eyes and your ears open. And that's what Cal Ripken was so good at doing. He never missed a trick on the field. He never missed a play on the field. And then off the field, he could read a person and read the room about as well as anyone I've ever seen. And that's how he could have run and will run any company, even outside of baseball. Well, it's really interesting that you bring up, you know, Cal Ripken Jr. Because, you know, like a Derek Jeter or, or like other players who are their face of their franchise, it's not just what you saw on the field. It's also, you know, what they bring, you know, off the field. And, you know, they almost become like a face of a city. And, you know, people can identify with those type of athletes because they transcend the sports that they play in. And I think that's why it's easy to discuss them. And you do such a great job really talking about and alluding to some of the conversations that you have had, you know, with family members and them giving insight on, you know, who that they're, son or daughter is let's say and so when you think about tim kirchin yourself when when we think about you tim and how you go about your job every day and working for espn and all the organizations you work prior to espn what do you to best prepare yourself every day in your profession what are things that you rely on yourself you mentioned you know working with carl working with eduardo but what what do you do to prepare and what are things that you can share with CEOs or other executives and organization, and maybe they can adopt some of the things that work best for you. Well, I prepare every day, whether I'm covering a game that night or not. Every single day starts the same way, five o'clock in the morning, maybe six. I get out of Diet Mountain Dew and I read the box scores because the box scores tell you an awful lot. If I haven't read the box scores by 7.30 in the morning, and I mean memorized, devoured the box scores, I don't feel real comfortable. That's my preparation time to get the game and the day started. Um, For 20 years, before the internet became a big thing, right. I used to I cut out every box score of every game and tape them in a notebook like I was in the sixth grade. Um, but that was how I prepared for the day. I had my box score book with me wherever I went. So if I was flying from home, Maryland, to San Diego to cover the Padres for a couple of days, I had every Padre game in my bag with me on the airplane 
so I could study up. So preparation is absolutely critical for me, just like any player, just like any manager. The last thing, the only time I ever get nervous is on on TV is when I don't know what I'm talking about. And the only time I don't know what I'm talking about is when I'm totally unprepared. That simply cannot happen. So it all starts first thing, reading the box scores, reading everything I can get, watching every highlight I can get. And then I feel like I'm ready for the day. And then when I don't know something, I call somebody for help. And I, even at age 64, 42 years covering the game, I'll still call someone in the game and say, look, uh, here's how I read this situation. Am I seeing this right? Help me here. And that's what you keep have to keep doing. You have to keep asking questions if you're going to continue to learn in this business. And did you feel that, you know, when you talk about your preparation for an ESPN broadcast or when you're out at the baseball park and you're interviewing players and you're studying the box scores and you're, you know, all the, the notes, you know, prior to the game, you know, who got injured, you know, who's on a hot streak, you know, whose batting average is up who's primed to help a team maybe, you know, win, you know, the World Series, let's say, if we're in the postseason. You know, when you think about what we had to go through during the pandemic and how it was such an uncertain, unpredictable, unprecedented time, and did you rely on your ESPN colleagues for advice or family members? You know, how did you, you know, get through those times? Because so many companies, so many organizations, you know, in the, in the capital markets world and business on Wall Street, they were going through similar things, you know, trying to figure it out, trying to figure out what's next. How did you get through the pandemic? What, what were the things that you had to, you know, help teach yourself or who did you go to for advice? Well, the pandemic was the hardest situation any of us have dealt with in our business. What I did when I recognized we're not going to play baseball for three months, I ended up doing on my own just a daily look at this date in baseball history, starting with March 29th and finishing with July the 2nd. And I wrote for my own benefit and for all those people out there who were missing the game, I called it the baseball fix. And I wrote it every single day, March 29th to July 2nd, what happened on this date with little notes to go with it. And then a one minute video on that important day, whether it was Tony Gwynn's birthday or Nolan Ryan's 300th win, whatever it was, I would find the most important thing that day and write about it. I needed to do that for my own sanity because otherwise I would have gone three months without doing anything in baseball. And I just wasn't, I just couldn't do that. Now, the really hard part, which is still going on, is trying to do my job without doing what I do best, and that's go to the ballpark and speak to the players. There is nothing more enjoyable to me than going to a major league game and wandering through the clubhouse and talking to as many players as possible. That's how you learn what's going on with the team. So I can do all my prep work from home, all my stats, I can have everything prepared, but there is no substitute for being at the ballpark. And it's just been very, very difficult because last year, 2020, we weren't even allowed in the ballpark. And then if we, and this year we've been allowed, but not close enough to the players where I can just sidle up to next to somebody in the clubhouse and talk to them before or after a game. We're not allowed to do that. 
So it's made my job demonstrably harder trying to figure out how am I going to do my job without the most important part of it. And that is speaking, connecting and communicating face to face with the players, coaches and managers. And it's been a really difficult run, not to mention trying to broadcast a game while I'm sitting in my house watching television, as opposed to being at the ballpark. There is no substitute for being at the park. And I miss it terribly this year and last. You know, understood, Tim. And, you know, I know that the conversations that we had last year and even the beginning of the pandemic and, you know, you you live in the Maryland area and, you know, you were talking about, I think you're on your way to a grocery store and you're going to put your mask on and we were all going through such unbelievable times and it just really brought out the human elements uh, of what we were going through because, you know, we're, we're known, you know, for you know, what we're known for. It's our passions for our professions. And, you know, people see you on TV and people see what you do on TV, but behind um, or outside the cameras, if you will, I mean, outside of your, 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 your daily life at ESPN, you know, you have family to take care of, you have, you know, your life outside of baseball too. And I think it brings me to my next question. You know, we're fellow Armenians. And I know that when we first met, you know, we talked, our first conversation was about 10 to 15 minutes. We ran into each other at the Bristol headquarters at ESPN. And when we talked about, you know, being Armenian and do you ever think about your culture? Do you ever think about your ethnicity as an Armenian? And, you know, we have such a deep, you know, enriched history as Armenians. And, you know, we have so much to be proud of. And do you ever think about your childhood and maybe some of the things that your, your, your parents would have told you or some of the stories from other fellow Armenians, let's say, where, you know, you've applied it to today, you know, what, what you do, you know, are, you know, we have a history of being survivors, you know, going back to the Armenian genocide. And we have ancestors who had, you know, either perished during a genocide or even survive the genocide. So I think it's in our DNA that we're, we're very strong people. So were, were there any or are there any things that you think about and how it applies to what you deal with today and what you might impart to any type of community, whether it's sports or, or business? Well, I'm a very proud Armenian. I'm not a very knowledgeable Armenian. I don't know <laughs> the history of our country. I don't know my family history very well. I just know growing up, uh, my father was Armenian, my mother was British, and uh, all my father was one of the strongest men I've ever met, most disciplined, went to work every day, went to MIT undergrad. Uh, he taught me just about, he and my mom, just about everything I needed to know. But his mother, my nana, was just the strongest woman in the world. She fell off a ladder painting the house when she was like 75 years old, and of course, she got right back up and got back on the, the ladder. This right. is what Armenians do. They are tough, sturdy people, and they're unbelievably loyal. So when I travel the country, I routinely meet Armenian people in an airport or in a restaurant, and they just want to say hello because they're Armenian, nothing else. They don't even want, sometimes they don't even want to talk about baseball. But that's what I love so much about the Armenian people is just how, how close 
knit the culture is there. I mean, our last names all end in IAN, so right. we're, we're pretty much a dead giveaway. And famously, I went to a, I went to the All Star Game in two thousand one in Seattle, and an Armenian waiter came up to me and introduced himself, and he said, "Oh my gosh, it's you! You're Armenian, and you're you're at the All Star <laughs> Game." So like. 30 seconds later, another Armenian waiter walked by and this right. Armenian waiter said to the new one, hey, you got to come over and meet this guy. He's Armenian and he covers baseball. And then he pauses and he goes, this is Armin Katayan. So <laughs> he had the wrong Armenian sports writer. Right. But I didn't have the heart to say, you've got the wrong guy. So I became Armin Katayan for about 45 seconds because <laughs> I didn't have any other choice. Someday they're going to meet the real Armin Katayan, who's about a foot taller than me. Right. And uh, it's going to be pretty embarrassing. They're going to say some little guy was pretending to be you 15 years ago. Either way, the point is, I love the Armenian people. They're very strong, very sturdy, very loyal people. So anytime I get to meet an Armenian, you can count me in. Absolutely. And, you know, the one thing I wanted to uh, also mention is, is that, you know, being Armenian, you know, we, we love we love good food and we love amazing food. And I think that's also a part of our culture, too. And I think that, you know, I've met people who are non Armenian who who love the Armenian cuisine. And I think that, you know, when you think about watching a baseball game, you know, who knows, you know, maybe it'll be more of a cultural thing to, you know, watch sports and be around a table with, you know, you know, your family and, you know, have friends, you understand more about, you know, our culture, our food, our, our, you know, singing, our dance type of dance that we have. And, you know, it's, it's pretty remarkable, you know, how we, we share a special, special bond. And, you know, there are, you know, former professional athletes who have Armenian, you know, heritage, blood in them. And I'm sure they would say the same things and, and have similar type of, of stories. I, I wanted to, uh, you know, talk about before we, uh, you know, depart from our broadcast, but, you know, I, I bought this book and I, and I love it so much and just wanted to have you share with me what inspired you to write this book and, you know, what do you love so much about the game of baseball that maybe somebody wouldn't know who watches you on TV? Well, that's my third book and all three books were inspired by my father who I repeat was a really good player, had a great feel for the game, taught his three boys how to play the game, how to understand what we were doing and what we were watching. My two brothers, Matt and Andy, are in the Hall of Fame for baseball at Catholic University. So this is all inspired from my father. After I wrote my first book, I took some time away from being an author. And he said, Tim, you got to take all your stories and you got to put them in one place. So that's where my second book came from. And the third book, I'm Fascinated by Sacrifice Flies, is just I accrued a bunch more stories that followed my second book. So this is all my dad saying, you, you've got to make sure you get all of these in one place. And now I have a bookshelf at my house with my three books, and I can 
honestly say, well, all my best stories are right over there. They're all in my head, and now they're all in print somewhere. And although I haven't written a book in five years, so um, I'm going to need to write another one. But to repeat, this all comes from my father, who taught us to love the game. Um, this isn't something I got interested in after high school. This is something that I was born into. I can't, I mean, when I was five years old, I loved baseball. It wasn't until I was about nine that I actually truly understood what I was watching, but I've made a career out of the game that I love so much. And as you may know, I went to Walter Johnson high school in Bethesda, Maryland, named after the greatest pitcher of all time. So there's a little bit of destiny involved that a guy who went to a high school named after a pitcher uh, would end up making a career out of baseball and couldn't be happier about that. Well, it's amazing when you talk about the strong bond that you have with your father. And, you know, my father and I, we run our company, Wave Capital Partners, and we're just so blessed and thankful to have the relationship that we have going back, you know, seven years of working together. And, you know, I come from a big family of New York Yankees fans. My grandfather was a lifelong New York Mets fan, and I was a Yankees fan as well, but I also root for my hometown Tampa Bay Rays and they made it to the World Series last year. And I'm very excited to see what they can do in the postseason and if they can get back to the World Series. Any final World Series predictions before we uh, end our broadcast, Tim? If you if you could have a crystal ball in front of you, you know, what is your intelligence, what is your baseball intelligence telling you right now? Well, there is no crystal ball, and that's the <laughs> the ultimate beauty of baseball is there were years there where when Michael Jordan's teams were dominant you right. kind of knew they were going to win the the championship before the season started right you know Tom Brady a few of those years you kind of knew the, the Patriots were going to win the Super Bowl before the season started the beauty of this sport is you don't know what's going to happen during the course of a year you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow and that's right. what I love so much about it. But to answer your question, I think the Dodgers will be the best team in the National League heading into October. I think the Rays are the best team in the American League. I think they played a stunningly good World Series last year. And my guess is they will play in the World Series again this year. But if you ask me tomorrow, I might have a different answer, which is the beauty of baseball is it is such a transitional sport. It changes literally day to day. But right. I'll go with the Dodgers and the Rays. And I'll go with the Dodgers repeating. That hasn't happened since the Yankees, 99-2000. But right. I, I'm sold on the Dodgers' talent. But they, they have a rough road to get to the World Series out of right. the NL. And the Rays are a great team. So I, I can't wait for October baseball. Well, I'm excited too, Tim. And I really appreciate all the insight. And the audience uh, who will be watching on YouTube really appreciates it as well. And I hope we can do this again soon. Thank you so much for your time. Always consider you a fellow Armenian as well as a, as a lifelong friend. And you've been so good keeping in touch and you know really if I had a question or if I have any you know thoughts that I'd like to share with you you're always quick to respond and I really want to thank you again it was such a great broadcast and thank you so much for your time and I look forward to talking baseball with you very very soon 
Okay, my pleasure, Garrett. I'm going to make some peel off now. I got to go. All right, sounds good. I'm actually kind of hungry, so peel off sounds really good. <laughs> you take care, all right? Take care, Tim. Thank you so much. God bless. You too. Bye-bye.